So this, this parable kind of comes, at least in Mark's account, um, in a string of stories that kind of leads up to uh, Jesus' crucifixion. So uh, sometimes at the college I'll ask my students, uh, why did Jesus die? And you get uh, kind of regular answers because he loves us um, in order to forgive us from our sins, um, those sorts of things. And certainly theologically there's a lot of truth in that. But historically, there's another answer. That is, um, the Jews did not want Jesus to die because uh, our sins needed to be forgiven, right? The Romans did not execute Jesus uh, because they didn't want Christianity to exist, right? Jesus died, Jesus was executed by the government because he did things and he said things that got him killed, he, he did things and he said things that made people so angry that they, they wanted him to die. The Romans wanted him to die because they, they saw him as a potential uh, insurrectionist, as a rebel, as someone who would lead the Jews against Rome. And some of the Jewish leaders wanted him to die because they saw him as someone who was kind of usurping their authority and perhaps could get them killed by the Romans. And so... Um, a little uh, dialogical um, feedback here. Uh, how many years did Jesus have his public ministry? Three. Yeah, three. That's what we say. And we know that because in the scripture it says Jesus ministered three years. <laughs> right? What passage and verse is that? So we don't know, right? Uh, the scripture never tells us that Jesus' ministry was three years long. In fact, if all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would have expected his ministry was only about a year long. It's only because we have the Gospel of John that we know that the ministry, his public ministry must have taken longer. And we know that because in John's Gospel, it has multiple references to, to Passover. Passover is a holiday that only comes once a year. And so if you have multiple references to it, and sometimes Jesus is down in Jerusalem, and sometimes he's up in Galilee, then we can, we can tell that he must have ministered for a longer period of time. Uh, it would be like um, the 4th of July. If I said, well, this 4th of July was in San Francisco, and at the last 4th of July, uh, I had taken a, a group to Israel. That's a different 4th of July, right? I didn't do that on the same 4th of July. So that's, that's how we know from John's Gospel. But in Mark's Gospel... The story seems much more compressed. Jesus seems to only go to Jerusalem once, and when he goes there, things blow up. He gets to the temple. He's, he's doing his temple action. Uh, sometimes our Bibles refer to it as the cleansing of the temple. Uh, scripture doesn't actually ever call it the cleansing of the temple, but sometimes in our Bibles, the subheading of that section is called cleansing of the temple. We should put cleansing in air quotes, uh, because it's not really cleansing. It's, it's more like uh, cursing, uh, destroying, tearing down. I mean, he didn't do a lot of cleaning. <laughs> don't, get, don't get confused. So, so Jesus does that action in the temple, and their initial response, they here, are, are the Jewish uh, religious uh, leaders. Their initial response is, who gave you the authority to do this? which I think is a great question, right? So if, if one of you jumped up right now, flipped over our tables, blew out our candles, pushed me off the stage, and decided that you should give the sermon, uh, next Sunday, uh, when you showed up, we would say to you, 
Uh, who told you you could do that? Don't, don't do that. But that's, that's, that's the sense of what happened, right? So their question is, who told you that you could do this? And in very classic Jesus style, he says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question, but tell me something first. Was John the Baptist from heaven or no? I love Jesus' answers to questions. He answers a question with a question. So, they, so they, they, they huddle up, and they're like, well, if we say yes, then he'll say, John the Baptist called me the Lamb of God, and so that's not good for us. But if we say no, everybody will be, will be mad at us because everybody likes John the Baptist. So they said, uh, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, I'm not telling. <laughs> I know, it's like a joke, isn't it? You should read the Gospel of Mark sometime. It's really wonderful. So um, it's in the midst of these types of uh, stories. This is the, the post-cleansing account. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's come to Jerusalem. He's made a ruckus in the temple. Now he's being quizzed left and right everywhere he goes about what, what's he think he's doing and what's he up to. And so he decides to tell a parable, and this is the parable he tells. There was this guy who owned a field, and he did a lot of work on it. He made it look really good. He dug a well, and he built a wine press, and he made a fence. And then he left town, and he leased it out to a group of people. And those people were living there, and they were profiting from the crops. And so he sent one of his servants when it was uh, time for the harvest, and said, okay, time to make your payment, you know, pay rent, give me some of, the, some of the crops, some of the harvest. And they beat that guy up and sent him back. And so the next year, the next harvest, he sends another servant, and they beat that guy up and insulted him. And as it goes, the next time, the next servant, they beat him up and they kill him. And so year after year, servant after servant, some get beaten up, some get killed. Till finally says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And they do just the opposite. They're like, ah, this guy is the sole heir of the field. If he's dead, then there's no one to inherit it. And it can be ours forever. So they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. And of course, the question comes, well, what's the owner going to do when he shows up and you've killed his son? Is he going to let you keep the vineyard? It's an obvious question. No. So often I think Jesus' parables are fairly opaque. Um, I think they're kind of difficult to understand. I mean, there's, there's something laying there just on the surface but, but beneath it, it becomes um, a little mysterious. They, 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 mesmer, they mesmerize me just a bit. This one, not so much. I think this is probably as straightforward a parable as Jesus ever tells. I think God is the field owner. I think the field represents Israel. I think those who have leased the field represent the leadership of Israel. I think the servants that have been sent to speak to them are the prophets that were sent generation after generation. 
uh, Samuel and Nathan and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Mike, and Nahum. The whole bunch, right? And what did they do to the prophets? Did they listen to the prophets? Not so much, right? They beat the prophets. They insulted the prophets. They imprisoned the prophets. And some of the prophets they killed. And so it was that eventually... God sends His own Son, who definitely plays the role of the prophet. There's two very competing narratives that are going throughout Scripture. It starts in Genesis, and it plays throughout the rest of the book. These two competing narratives, one of them is the narrative of, of royalty, of the kings. It's the narrative of Pharaoh, and unfortunately, the narrative of most of the Israelite kings. And that is one of, of, of power and control and domination. And there's an alternative narrative that also plays throughout the text, and we'll call it the narrative of the prophets. The prophet is an interesting role in the community. The prophet is kind of raised up to correct the status quo. Now, in my life, I'd like to think of myself a somewhat prophetic, someone, someone who can critique the status quo. Of course, the problem with being kind of anti-establishment or one who might critique the status quo is I find myself now kind of representing the establishment. Right? I mean, what do you do when you're a middle-aged white guy? And you're credentialed by the church and you're credentialed by the academy and people treat you nice and you got a good job. I am the status quo. It's like this world was made for me. Yet, there's, there's part of me that still feels called to this, this role that the prophets played. The prophets are interesting people. Certainly, they represent messengers. They're messengers of God. They come and speak in favor of God. And interestingly, what they often have to say is not to the world at large, but to the people of God. And what they have to say to the people of God is more often than not a critique, not a blessing. Like, they give them these options. Option A, you repent, and you receive these things, good things. Option B, you don't repent, and you receive these things, you know, punishment, judgment. That's the, the role of the prophet. They're kind of critiquing the status quo, but the status quo is the people of God. God's anointed leader. So certainly they're messengers. They're also minstrels. Um, they're poets. Uh, they speak poetically and they, they use metaphor. Kind of like Jesus as he told parables. Jesus' parables place him right at the heart of the prophetic tradition and kind of speaking metaphorically about the role of God in life. So certainly Jesus is a messenger of God. He's speaking on God's behalf. He's, he's very poetic and a minstrel like the prophets before him like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel especially. Um, the, the, the prophets were also uh, madmen, we'll call them. They, they, they were just a little off. Right? Everyone else thought of them as, as being peculiar. Right? Like when everybody else is happy and thinking, hey, things are going really well, the prophet's like, oh no, here comes something bad. 
And then when everybody else is down in the pit, and they're like, oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. The prophet's over here dancing, saying, things are getting ready to be good. I'm like, who is that guy? The prophets, I mean, on, on the one hand, certainly they did not get respected uh, in Israelite history. I mean, eventually they do, right, because they become the heroes of Scripture. But in their day, they're not. I mean, Jesus even says this, no prophets except in his hometown. And, and part of me wants to say, oh, you know, why didn't the Israelites accept the prophets? And the other part of me wants to say, well, obviously they didn't. They did strange things, right? Isaiah prophesied for three years naked, right? Let's be thankful that's not a practice ministers follow today. Um, Jeremiah buys this brand new pot and then breaks it. And it's like, see? <laughs> Ezekiel, Ezekiel builds a sandcastle and then lays down next to it for a long time. And then he flips over and lays on the other side. They had these walls built around the cities to protect them. Ezekiel knocked a hole in the wall and carried all of his luggage out through the hole. You know, you, you got to think, there were like normal people who were like, hey, Zeke, there's a gate. <laughs> so Jesus comes on the scene, and obviously he's a messenger, and obviously he's a minstrel, and I think we can also say he's a little bit of a madman. That is, he follows this kind of prophetic quirkiness. A guy says, I can't see. Jesus says, hold on a minute. <laughs> and he spits in his eye. Also something we should be thankful that ministers don't do today. Right? I don't feel well. Well, come here for a second. <laughs> Jesus wants to, to make a point, And he goes in and he tears up the temple. There's the last thing that the, the prophets seem to share in common. They're, they're messengers, they're, they're minstrels, they're madmen, and they're martyrs. Um, they find themselves in, in bad situations. Jeremiah in a pit because he told them that Babylon was coming. And then, of course, they said, that's not true, and he says it is. They threw him in the pit, Babylon came. They took him out of the pit and said, listen, we'll do whatever you, whatever you tell us to do, we're going to do. We know you speak the truth. And he says, well, the thing we should do is stay here now, and God will protect us even in the midst of the Babylonian occupation. And they said, can't do that. And they kidnapped him and took him to Egypt. <laughs> it's a horrible story, really. There's this long narrative that starts with deliverance out of Egypt. Right? They get the land. And in that long arc, it ends up with the prophet being kidnapped and taken back where? To Egypt. So now Jesus is on the scene. And he's definitely feeling these prophetic vibes. And he's playing this prophetic role. And he tells this story, this parable about how all these prophets had been rejected and killed, and that he's in line. And then there's this quote from, from Psalm 118. Have you not heard about how the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? We opened our service in the call to worship from that psalm. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus 
comes and he provides for us uh, what we could not possibly have provided for ourselves and what none of us would have ever anticipated. He comes to establish a kingdom on earth, right? He says, he says to Pilate that his kingdom is not of the earth, but it doesn't mean it's not on the earth. When he says it's not of the earth, he means it's not earthly. It's not, it doesn't follow the same rules. It doesn't have to do with occupation and accumulation and monopoly and, and pushing out the other. Jesus' kingdom is like, if you're hungry, come and we'll feed you. If you're thirsty, come and we'll give you something to drink. If you're naked, come and we'll clothe you. Are you a stranger? We'll come and be welcomed. Are you a prisoner? We'll come to visit you. This is his kingdom. I want to say this. Uh, I think historically, um, we have gotten the, the parable pretty right. Like, I think given where Jesus was, it was post-temple post, uh, action, and he, he's being quizzed by the leaders, and he said this, and his life, and he's lived this. But my question is, all right, so, so that's a great story. Jesus lived a life, and he was a messenger of God, and he was very poetic, and he acted bizarre like the other prophets. He, he, he became the ultimate martyr. But what does that mean for us? I mean, so what? How, how am I going to live my life today or tomorrow or this week any differently? Well, I think there are a few things um, that it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to, to make by way of analogy. Sometimes in, in Christian circles, uh, we say that the Christian church is a priesthood of all believers. And I think that's, that's true. Um, in 1 Peter, there's a reference to the church as a kingdom of priests. Um, it's a really interesting uh, metaphor. It means that uh, as opposed to um, the Jewish way of practicing where uh, there was a priest and you kind of came to the priest and then the priest went to God on your behalf, we now serve as kind of a collective group of priests, meaning not that you can all go to God by yourself and you don't need a priest, which I think is a horrible evangelical interpretation of priesthood of all believers. I think it means that we can all play the role of a priest, meaning we all go to God on behalf of someone else. That's what the priests do. I don't think it was trying to, uh, a priesthood of believers wasn't trying to erase the role of priest. It was to try and include us all into what it means to be a priest. Meaning, you ought not just be concerned about your own soul. <laughs> you ought to be concerned about the soul that's sitting next to you. You ought to go to God on their behalf. You ought to pray for them. You ought to carry their burden. That's, that's the priestly role. And I think now we're all called to do that. So you don't have to come to me or to Phil, right? But, but you, you should go to someone. James will say, confess your sins one to another, right? Prayer the prayer of faith so that the sick may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. That's kind of a priestly thing to do, right? So you don't have to go just to the priest to do it, but we can do it to, to, for and with each other. There's another thing that's less talked about, but I think in today's context um, should be mentioned. And that is in a post-Pentecost church, 
for the most part, would be the whole history of the church, but we'll set that aside. In a, in a post-Pentecost church, we're not just a priesthood of all believers, but we should also be a prophethood of all believers. That we're all also called to be messengers of God, to be minstrels, perhaps to be mad people, to be martyrs. That, that to be Christian is to be Christ-like. So, I mean, if I asked how many of you are Christians, I would suspect that most of you would raise your hands, that you, would, you self-identify as a Christian. But if I asked how many of you are Christ-like, I think more than half of you would probably put your hands back down. Well, of course you would, because to say you're Christ-like is way arrogant. <laughs> Except that to be Christian means to be like Christ. Like, that's what the word means. <laughs> Where the, Paul would tell us that the Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ. We are to be disciples of Christ. We are Christ followers, meaning that, that Jesus is this one and only unique person who did this one and only unique act that created this relationship between us and God and is going to heal and save the world. And he's also the perfect example of how to be a human being of how to live a life in this world. And so I'm not trying to detract from the uniqueness of Christ when I say that Jesus is our ultimate example, that we should live like Christ. We should love like Christ. We should speak like Christ. We should see others like Christ. And if Jesus kind of played this kind of prophetic role, then I think the church, too, is kind of called to play a prophetic role. And playing a prophetic role means that sometimes, and maybe more than sometimes, we'll be at odds with the status quo, with, with the dominant culture. The um, Beatitudes, Jesus' interpretation of Scripture. You have heard it said, do not murder. That's a good status quo. Right? Can we all appreciate that? Don't kill nobody today? I think you'll make it. Right? I mean, good chances that we're going to make it through the day and not have to kill anybody. You feel good about that? No one's giving me any response. I'm getting concerned. <laughs> but Jesus said, you have heard it said, don't commit murder. I'm telling you not to hate. You realize that's a little bit higher standard? Possible that we might be guilty of that even today? Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Once again, I hope we can all make it through the day without committing adultery. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you not to lust. Once again, that's a higher standard, right? That Jesus is calling us to. So what would it look like if the church was more prophetic? What would it look like if we, individually, were more prophetic? How, how would our lives living um, at odds with the status quo and a critique of the status quo look? Well, it has to look something like what Jesus describes the gospel like, right? So read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's a good summary of the gospel. 
Read, read Matthew uh, 24 and 25. I quoted it earlier when, when Jesus said, I was um, thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was a prisoner and you came to visit me. What do we think about strangers? What, what would we do with someone who's different from us? What if, what if they're undocumented? What if, what if they're from a different religion? What if they're from a different nationality? What if they're just from a different political party? I mean, we sometimes we laugh and make jokes right here at this point, and we say, and we mention sports teams. But I don't want to make that joke today because I want to be really serious with us. That if we want to call ourselves Christians, we got to find a way to follow the Christ. And when he described the other, he said, come and eat with me. We heard, um, well, we've heard this a lot. But I want to say this. You have heard it said, love your neighbor. Moses said that, by the way. There's another famous religious leader who also said it. His name was Muhammad, and it's written in the Koran. Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but I say, love your enemy. Now, I don't know if you're going to identify somebody of a different political party as your enemy or not. Hopefully not. <laughs> I don't know what you think your enemy is. Is it just the person at your job that you have odds with or your neighbor who keeps kind of turning you into the homeowners association? Like, I don't know who your enemies are. Um, but let me tell you this. Uh, whoever you think they are, Jesus is asking you to love them. That's tough. I mean, it's easy to say. It's tough to do. And I actually don't think it's something we can just do. Like, I don't, I don't think I, I can just kind of generate love. Like, okay, I'm going to love those people now. I, I think it happens as we receive forgiveness from God. As, as we come to church, as we pray, as we sing, as we take communion... Those practices shape us and form us. And before you know it, we find ourselves being more graceful and merciful and loving. There's another major part of this role that I think uh, you should know. That being more prophetic, that following Jesus' example in this regard is likely to include a fair amount of rejection in your life. See, all those prophets that had gotten rejected and then Jesus did it anyway, he's like, oh, I know a model of how to speak to the people of Israel. I'll be like a prophet. Like, have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> they killed those guys. 
So, and here I am today saying we need to follow Jesus. <laughs> it didn't end so well for the prophetic types, right? So you're liable to receive some rejection when you try and follow Jesus. You might find yourselves already being rejected or experiencing some form of rejection. And I don't, I don't know what that looks like, again, for you, but it can, it can come in all sorts of ways. Maybe it's a negative report from the doctor and you're feeling rejected by God, like, God, where are you? How could I have this report? Maybe it's a marriage that has fallen apart or, or looks like it is. It's on the rocks. Maybe it's a, a job that seems like it's a dead end. Um, maybe it's a, a relationship, whether in the family or outside at work or whatever, that is just a thorn in your flesh. Maybe it's because you find yourself trying to stand up for the marginalized and you feel like everybody's against you. There are lots of ways in which you might experience rejection, but let me tell you this story. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The table that we came to earlier was the table of the rejected one, was the table of the crucified Messiah, which is one of the ultimate oxymorons of human history. Killed leaders are not the successful ones. We serve the God who chose the slaves in Egypt, not the powerful. We serve a God who, who, who chose this small minority group, the Jews, not the majority. We serve a God who did not come and kill and conquer. We serve a God who sent His Son to come and die and serve. Rejection is at the heart of our group. But it's not the end of the story. 